creeds and criticism meet. Today we have Dr. Mary Conway with us. Yeah, she's going to be speaking on the topic of women in the Old Testament law. And just to give you guys a little understanding of uh, who she is, she's an assistant professor of Old Testament and Hebrew at McMaster Divinity College. She's co-authoring a commentary on Judges for Zondervan right now. And she's contributing to the new edition that's in the works right now. We don't know when it's coming out. Um, Discovering Biblical Equality, Complementarity Without Hierarchy. And um, formerly that was by... Edited by Pierce and Grotius, correct? Yep. Um, and actually, um, if you guys want to look uh, her up, she just came out with, um, from Eisenbrand, uh, Judging the Judges. A new book. But I think the biggest question we have for you right now, Doc, is, are you a Toronto Maple Leafs fan? Because oh I, I'm a diehard <laughs> Toronto Maple Leafs fan. He is. Well, let's put it this way. I don't follow sports, but I do remember my dad watching when Red Kelly won the scoring goal one year. Many years ago. Happy times. Before my time, but most of the good times for the Maple Leafs have been before my time. So, He keeps picking out outfits for our unborn son. Yep. We're getting them early. (laughs) Okay. And he was trying to convince uh, my sister's new baby, too, that the Maple Leafs were great. I don't think he understood anything. You just got to get him early. That's, you know, get him used to disappointment. It's spiritual formation, right? Well, all right. (laughs) As I say, I don't follow them, but you're you're almost got me convinced to do it. All right. There we go. He'll take what he can get. (laughs) So uh, how did you get into uh, your work on the Old Testament? What kind of your story is as it relates to... Uh, academic career and vocation and stuff like that. How did uh, how did you come to be an Old Testament professor? Uh, I came in really an odd route. I used to be a high school English teacher for a number of years, and so I did a lot of work with uh, literary interpretation and so on. And um, having, I was a Christian, wanted to learn more about the Bible, so I decided to sign up for a course. And the uh, only course that was available available at the location was an Old Testament course. Hmm. So I thought, oh, well, I'll take this and see how it goes. And uh, I really didn't know very much about the Old Testament except, you know, Sunday school stories, whatever. Hmm. But, and this course was an absolute eye-opener. It just, um, I had no idea how rich it is in in narrative and theology. And uh, the more I got into it, I decided I was going to pursue it and uh, did it part-time at first. And eventually did my master's and doctorate in Old Testament, and uh, now this is my second career. Oh, very nice. cool. Very cool. So, um, the Old Testament laws, uh, you know, frequently misunderstood by many today. I'd say Christians and non-Christians. Um, can you tell us uh, maybe a bit about what it is, how it functions, and um, especially, like, does it represent God's ideal standard? Because I think in, I think many of our popular circles right now, it's kind of, thought of as this is God's high standard that we just weren't able to measure up to. Therefore he sent Jesus, <laughs> something like yeah, that. Yeah. Yeah. Would you mind right. like setting us straight on that? <laughs> yes. Well, there, there is a dispensational view that uh, teaches that, well, God sent the law and, you know, unfortunately the plan A didn't work. And so he had to do plan B grace and sent Jesus. And yes, I've kind of heard that sort of, um, that approach, but uh, One of the first things I heard when I studied Old Testament was that if you read through the Old Testament, that the Exodus came before Sinai, grace came before the law. Hmm. And the more I study the Old Testament, the more grace I see in the Old Testament. So it's not a dichotomy. It's not a dichotomy. And the other thing is that, as you say, that a lot of people think that when God gave the law, this was his constitution for the ideal society. That this was, um, if everybody followed these regulations, then everybody would be um, happy and and it would be perfect. And and that isn't the case either. That um, 
the people of the Old Testament, like we do, lived in a very imperfect society. And that the law was, was, first of all, it was never intended to be statutory law as we know it today. And secondly, it was law, it was guidance for living in an imperfect society. It wasn't the constitution for a perfect society. Hmm. What kind of society was it made to exist in? It was designed for an ancient Near Eastern patriarchal society, um, a, a society based on subsistence agriculture. And uh, so it wasn't designed for um, the society we have today. And that's one of the problems that pe one of the approaches to the Old Testament law is to say, well, you know, the law fails and now we have grace, so we just ignore it. The other approach is to try and do a one-to-one -one correspondence and just take laws out of the Old Testament and plug them into our contemporary society. And that simply doesn't work because our society is so radically different from the ancient society. Hmm. So how how is it functioning then? And yeah, so what's what's kind of the I guess the contextual nature of the laws? Uh, we, yeah. as you mentioned, and uh, we've alluded to the idea of you can't just go one to one with something like this and expect the same sort of outcome because they're just different premises and contexts. And so, how would how do the Old Testament laws function, like maybe narratively or contextually, and and like what can right. you say to that? Well, you have it there when you talk about narratively and contextually. The thing is that this is why, as a former English teacher, I love the Old Testament, is because the Old Testament is narrative. It's the story of God's relationship with Israel. And you have to read the Old Testament laws within a narrative framework. You can't rip them out of that and, and treat them in isolation and apply them um, to a modern society, that the, that the law was part of a covenant relationship between Yahweh and Israel. And it, it, was, it was unique to that situation, part of the narrative context. And it was given to them, and again, not as statutory law, but as, a, in a, as wisdom, in order to give them guidance on how to live ethically in that particular situation. And uh, the thing is, if I could just um, expand on what I'm saying yeah, here, is do. that when we, when we use the word law itself, that, that is a gross misunderstanding because translating Torah as law is narrowing down the meaning of law unacceptably, that Torah is teaching or instruction. Hmm. And what happens is that um, in, in the Old Testament covenant, the relationship between Yahweh and Israel was that, that in the, if we go back to the Garden of Eden, the, 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 the purpose of humanity is to image God and reflect his glory into creation, to be caretakers of his good earth. And so it is the relationship that is important there. And Israel was in a covenant relationship with Yahweh. And the what we call the laws, which is really the teachings, were, were wisdom serving as precedent that people could consult to help them live in a society that was not a theocracy, that was not in covenant with God, and to help them survive and integrate into a culture in, in the best way that they could at that time. But you have to read the law in the context of the narrative, you can't um, you can't take it out and use it as if it were today's statutory law because it for first of all it's not a law code. When we say a code, the Canadian law code or American, if you have it in the states, is an organized system of laws that are comprehensive that are given. That are given from the top down, that apply to everyone, that are, are very clear and definitive. And that's not what the Old Testament law is. The, the Old Testament law is more like precedent, case studies that the elders and the and the priests would consider in as as they decided how to apply their ethics to their society. It's it's not 
um, an, a rigid legal system of rules. It's more wisdom that we can talk about and discuss in as we try to live uh, to live as representatives of God in an alien society. And this is kind of how Jesus seems to apply and interpret the law as well. Um, I, I know you gave me some examples too last time we talked. Do you mind sharing some with uh, some of our listeners? Now, would you like examples of Old Testament laws that are and how they would have applied then? Is that what you're... Uh, maybe some of the examples of how Jesus interpreted some of the yeah. Old Testament laws. Oh, yeah, sure. Um, for example, um, you have, in the Old Testament, there's a law that says that a woman caught in adultery should be stoned. Well, if you look at the New Testament, and I, I know this, there is some question about the um, uh, textual questions about this passage, but if you look at the woman caught in adultery, and she should have been stoned. And when they spoke to Jesus, he didn't, he didn't answer the question. He waited and basically said to them, if you're without sin, you cast the first stone. And so basically what he's saying is that, that this is not a rigid law that you can apply judgmentally to another person, that you have to deal with the situation in context. And you people are just, in, in your own way, are as sinful as she is. So, And he dealt with the situation compassionately. And he, he still told the woman to go and sin no more. But he dealt with the situation in a more meaningful, compassionate way, not in a mechanical, legalistic way. Yeah, and that would have been an entrapment, too, frankly. Um but yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I know uh, he does something similar too with the Sabbath as well. Oh yes, yeah. When they're walking through the field and they're oh. gathering grain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that the Sabbath was made for humanity, not humanity for the Sabbath. So again, these these the the, the teaching the the Torah is given to us to facilitate living a, a meaningful life, a life of shalom, a life of prosperity. Yeah. in the world and it's not to be applied rigidly and mechanically yeah. as some people might think and he places it back into the context i believe of the exodus too so what you were saying yeah. about the narrative context yeah and um generally uh and this is where a lot of my friends get kind of weirded out by the old testament but Generally, how were women regarded or portrayed in Old Testament law? Like, because I know there's a huge, well, at least, you know, Christianity gets called, you know, sexist, sexist and all this sort of stuff because the Old Testament law or teachings. Um, and I think there's stuff like, um, even before we get into some of the really controversial passages, um, just even little things like, I, I believe sometimes women have to go through a longer purity process. Um, so yeah. stuff related to menstruation, other things that we really don't understand. <laughs> yeah. Well, some of that is definitely seems to be more prejudicial to women, although you must remember that men are also considered impure if they have an emission. Mm -hmm. So not all of it is the purity laws are there's a rationale behind that that does apply to men as well. But yes, they do seem to be um more rigid in the case of women in some respects. And so we have to remember that this was a way of accommodating to the society and living in that society. And they used many of the values of that society. These laws are not um, eternal abstract principles that apply at every time. I'm quite sure that in a hundred years, people will look back on our society and Point out things that we do that are not um, that are not equitable in many ways. So, well, we see it now. Uh, we don't even have to wait a hundred years. But and that is because we are flawed people. Hmm. You know, this is not God's constitution for an ideal society. And a lot of the like, and even in the New Testament, you see a lot of the um, Paul rec is gives some recommendations about okay, you're Christians and you want to minister to this society, but you also have to interact with the society in a way that they understand according to their standards and values in order to be heard. So um, there is some accommodation, yes. Yeah, I, and, think, uh, yeah. 
Isn't a lot of the rituals um, styled after Near Eastern practice with certain departures as well? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, that a lot of what they did is not unique to the Old Testament. A lot of this, these behaviors and uh, standards were common in the ancient Near East. And even, as I say, that even today, a lot of the values and standards that we have as Christians would be shared by secular culture. And, uh, but there are some differences as well. And so it's not surprising that there's a certain overlap. Yeah. So, I mean, a Near Eastern person would, could essentially go into a, well, you know, they could perhaps look at a Israelite service and recognize quite a bit of it with some notable changes. Oh, yeah. Changes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Definitely. The whole sacrificial system is common. Yeah. In the ancient Near East. Yeah. Yeah. Except you burn the entrails. <laughs> <laughs> yeah don't look through it yeah um, yeah so yeah just yeah just so when people think in terms of accommodation too like there's lots of times where god essentially says well you know this isn't necessarily my ideal but yeah you know here you That's go right. like you know and we the, want a king yep give us a king and i don't want to give you a king Exactly. Uh, yeah, that's a, one of the. We won't get into that now because I can have a long discussion on that, the nice. kingship. But that, <laughs> but uh, the, the one thing is though that um, oh, uh, something you said tweaked my um, thoughts there. But, oh, I know what it was. In, in terms of divorce, Jesus himself says that uh, that Moses gave this law because of the hardness of your hearts, hmm. and so God does accommodate to the stage we're at in our in our in the journey of humanity. And I often tell my students that Jesus was as the word was enculturated into the, the the society of first century Israel. And God's law is also enculturated that he deals with us where we are. He doesn't um, these laws are relevant to our situation and accommodating to our weaknesses. Yeah, and mitigating, I would say, dam- concrete damage. Um, I think a lot of people, they think, you know, well, you know, but it's it's helping to prop up abusive system. And that's not necessarily the case. Um, it's, I think, sometimes living in reality. And since certain things are a given reality, it's trying to minimize or change things yeah. slowly. Yeah, and there's the one example of that that we mentioned earlier is that the, one of the laws that really offends people is the requirement that a woman marry her rapist. And people think, you know, how on earth could that possibly be um, a, a part of the law, that it's it's horrific as far as women are concerned. But again, with the difference in society, um, in that society, if a woman was uh, raped, she was, and again, this is the society, it's not the ideal, she would be considered damaged goods. And she would probably not be able to um, be put into any other marriage because she's in some way tainted by this. And so by requiring her to marry the rapist or requiring that the rapist marry her is basically saying to to the man, you have put this woman in a very compromising, difficult situation. Therefore, you are going to accept the responsibility of supporting her for the rest of her life. And there are situations, if you look there, where there is, the father may step in and refuse the marriage and instead demand money from him, uh, probably to help support her. But in our society, although that sounds very uh, terrible, in that society, a woman could not survive on her own. She could. She, um, that, um, she couldn't go out and, and get a job in an office, for instance. That the society at that time was a, a, a an agrarian society, and that the the locus of economics was the household, and it was only in the household that the man and the woman had any role. That. So that was really the only option open to people at that time. Hmm. Something to maybe push back on. Um, there are societies now where that's the norm. Yeah. And women coming out of those societies even now. 
some of them say they would rather have died, frankly, than had to marry the person that raped them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You're right. And, and, uh, I, and I imagine that in that time, that was true equal, equally. I don't think that the woman would have been very happy about it. Um, and I, I don't make excuses for it. That the law was never intended to be perfect. It was how to perhaps, at least from their perspective, not our perspective, that it was a way to minimize the damage, not to to make everything all happy and rosy. That um, that that was never the intent. And I agree with you. I mean, if I were in that situation, I would certainly not want to. Yeah, because um, you know, do you want to live in continual horrific abuse, or do you want to? Um, yeah. It's, yeah, it's a tough, um, let's actually look at maybe two specific passages because there's actually some nuance between these. Um, I can read, um, I think, yeah, the first one, uh, we'll do Deuteronomy 22, 23 through 29. And you can mm-hmm. correct, um, me too, cause you may know like some of the Hebrew intricacies. Um, so it starts with, um, if there's a betrothed virgin and a man meets her in the city and lies with her. Then you shall bring them both out to the gate of the city, and you shall stone them to death with stones. The young woman, because she did not cry for help, though she was in the city, and the man, because he violated his neighbor's wife. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. But if in the open country a man meets a young woman who is betrothed, and the man seizes her and lies with her, then only the man who lay with her shall die. But you shall do nothing to the young woman. She has committed no offense punishable by death. For... This case is like that of a man attacking and murdering his neighbor. Interesting. Because he met her in the open country, and he and though the betrothed young woman cried for help, there was no one to rescue her. And then it says, If a man meets a virgin who is not betrothed, and seizes her and lies with her, and they are found, then the man who lay with her shall give to the father of the young woman fifty shekels of silver, and she shall be his wife, because he has violated her. He may not divorce her all his days. Yeah. In other words, he has to support her. Yeah. And so your question there was? Yeah. So I guess um, first, so this latter part is a situation of of rape as well. And it seems like Mm -hmm. he's supposed to support her. Um, On the flip side, um, were women allowed, I believe, and you had brought this up before, to divorce um, their husband upon their own accord? Well, they, there were provisions that uh, the, the husband had to provide um, food, shelter, and actually so, uh, they interpret that as love, food, shelter, and you know emotional support. And that if he didn't provide those, that would be uh, that would be a legitimate excuse for her, Getting out of that marriage, yes. Now, the woman couldn't actually um, apply for divorce in the same way as a man could. It would be perhaps undertaken by her father. But, uh, yes, there were provisions where a woman could get out of a marriage if the, the husband was not supporting her properly. Okay. And uh, just going back to the, the one you mentioned previously, now, I don't have my... Uh, my Old Testament opens that passage at the moment, but the, if I, in Deuteronomy 22 there, the first one was a woman pledged to a man, right? Yeah. Yeah. And the second yeah. one was a woman who was not pledged to a man. Yeah. And in those days, if you were pledged, that was considered binding. And so what he has done there, he has not only violated the woman, he's violated the husband, the prospective husband of that woman. But uh, in the case of the woman who is not bound to a man, then he is, because she is not already committed to a man, then he has to accept responsibility for her. So in that particular case, that would explain the difference there, because um, uh, in the one case, she's already basically married to someone else. Okay. So, yeah, it's interesting, because already, like, um, if I read this as an absolute law, um, it seems pretty bad. Um, it is. And, yeah, and, and there, frankly, there are elements in here that are not good, you know, and I think we yeah, both we'll acknowledge it. that. Yeah, but at the same time, get, yeah. And don't get the impression I'm trying to sanitize the sure. law, because that would really go against what I'm trying to argue. Yeah. What I'm saying is that the law was not perfect. It was not 
um, the, the Constitution for a Perfect Society. It was basically um, options, again, precedent. And sometimes you get different variations of the laws in different books because that Deuteronomy one also appears a similar way in Exodus. And sometimes you get variations on this. And this is okay that these are precedents. These are the way this situation has been handled in the past. And therefore, these are things they would just, the elders would discuss and consult as they're trying to decide what to do. And I'm not saying that these were perfect decisions. No. And hopefully um, that in the church today, that well, there's still, even today, if you think about this, that there was, in the early days of the settlement of North America, something called a shotgun wedding. <laughs> and that when you think about it, we're talking about a different society thousands of years later, and they had similar, they had similar ideas. And even today, um, if a woman gets pregnant, there's a lot of pressure on the woman to, to marry the father of the child, less recently, I grant you. But, you know, we, when you think about it, a lot of these attitudes are still, in some respects, a part of our society. And it makes, makes us stop and think, you know, that, okay, is this really the best and the compassionate way to deal with these situations? And I'm not arguing that these laws are, are all good. That, yeah. yes, I think that some of them we would do very well without. Yeah, and it seems interesting. So if we were to look at this kind of in a contextual manner, even for back then, it's not as though, like, she has absolutely no other recourse um, if she has to marry the person. Um, it does seem like there's the possibility, if you read in the context of other laws, possibility of divorce. Um, and obviously yeah. abuse would fit into that, like life-threatening mm -hmm. situation and, you know, just... Um, stuff like that. And that's good for people to know even now. Yes, there are other bases for divorce in the in the Bible. Um, but also, it nope. seems, given some of the other provisions um, that are laid out for um, people that are runaway slaves or mm -hmm. other situations, it seems like it's not necessarily as black and white. There is a lot no. of gray, even though there's a lot of bad in here. Yep. It's not necessarily mm -hmm. an absolute decree of yes you will marry your rapist and you will like it kind of thing yeah and as i said the father can intervene and if he thinks it's is not a good um, choice he can intervene and, and take a money um the money instead to support her so you know there are options and yes the laws about slavery again in that society, slavery was more or less a given. Now, one thing that you have to consider is that when the Hebrew people talked about slavery, they were they did not um, consider that they were buying or purchasing the human being as a slave. That the way it happened in in North America and the you know in the in recently in centuries in North America, that what you were purchasing in the in the Hebrew context was that person's work. So it was more of a, a bond service, and there were opportunities when, if, to, when you had paid off your debt or when you had served your time again to be freed. So there are some differences, but yeah, I mean, slavery in any form um, is objectionable, and perhaps in that society, if a that they accept it more readily than we do. And we don't have, this is the thing, we don't have to justify the Old Testament laws. Right. Because right. They, they were never intended to be perfect. Now, you can, um, you can, and in the new, in the older edition of Discovering Biblical Quality, um, the chapter on the law points out how some of these laws were, in some ways, um, beneficial to people because if a person was destitute then selling themselves into bond service and you know saying i will work for you for for money for a period of time is in fact better than starving to death you know so yeah. there, there are situations and there were options for becoming free Whereas if you look at other contexts, the slavery is, as we know it in other contexts, those people were sold body and soul in, as property to other people. Yeah, and, and the, end, the end in um, the Old Testament is towards the exodus 
mentality of freedom? You know, how can I yes. bring them towards more freedom versus less? And again, if you're going to starve to death, yeah, there's some better options. And again, you're not destitute after seven years or however long you work. Um, it's it's set up to kind of enable you to be to be fr more free. Um, even, yeah. but, I mean, the reality is, you know, this is out in the middle of nowhere and you have few options. You don't have, you know, government subsidies that are going to kick in. Um, exactly. So it's, mm -hmm. yeah, different starting point too. <laughs> and the, the other thing we talked about was the, the fact that of polygamy, that, you know, that a, a man can have several wives, at least it's not, abs it's not endorsed in the Old Testament, but it's certainly accepted. And, and yet, a, a woman can't have more than one husband, and that seems to be unequal. But in, again, in that society, um, that there, the, the economy was based on the household, and therefore, um, the, and, and a man would therefore be able to support more than one woman. Remember that in that society, the, the, the birth rate was only about 50% live births. And very often, wow. you know, 50% of babies would die. Wow. And very wow. often, a man would take on a secondary wife simply to ensure that he had offspring who could assist with keeping, you know, with the farming, the crop gathering, and so on and so forth. And also to provide more assistance for his wife in managing the, 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 the household. So, yes, that it, it does seem inequitable but it actually in some cases worked out for the woman's advantage that there was a, a larger labor force that she there was more support for a woman that um that, that, that produced more offspring to, to that could you know keep the family going and the economy going and so it's it's there is sometimes a bright side although i i don't again i'm in no way do i argue that it was an ideal yeah, and yeah, this is something for our listeners to keep in mind. Um, we're not here to give you guys a um, apologetic defense per se of the Old Testament, to, but to give more of a foundational understanding of how it operated, um, both the good and the bad. Um, something else to keep yeah. in mind: uh, there's a researcher named uh, Carol Myers, and she wrote on uh, basically. If you want to check it, check out some of her stuff. Um, she wrote about how Israelite society kind of worked in terms of um, both the husband and wife working out of the home. Yep. So exactly. that's, a, yeah, another dynamic. Um, both are kind of working in the home. She says that the division of labor was probably split between 60% of the work was probably done by the, the man and about 40% by the woman. And with about 10%, you know, going towards childcare and frankly, you know, just you're pregnant all the time. Um, there's not same yeah. level of birth control and you have your children dying constantly, um, which is yeah. possibly described in the um, section known as the curses, but maybe just more of right. a result of what's going to happen in Genesis. Um, it, it's, yeah. it's a very different right. dynamic. <laughs> yeah, that book is, is Discovering Eve. She actually came out with a new edition of it just a few years oh, ago. Nice. And and I've taught the I've taught a course on women of the Old Testament, and yes, exactly, that they lived in a subsistence agrarian society. And generally the man worked in the field and the woman worked in the house, but the woman was very much involved in the the economic running of and of course the, 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 the Greek word for house is the root of the word economic, that you didn't have industry outside of the house most of it was done within the household and you know farming uh, textile production cooking um, child rearing and women played a very very active role in that and they would even help in the fields at harvest time yeah so yeah. they're well, running the household essentially <laughs> it's kind of the idea of the man brings in the raw materials and the woman has specialized skills yeah. um, and remember that the women would have been pregnant yeah. uh, lot of the time and so it's not that they look down on the role of the woman the women actually had a lot more significance though because just one thing i think i think it's myers who points this out that when the woman married she would go and live in her husband's um household and therefore that this created a whole linkage of women whereas the men 
tended to stay in their in the original household the women tended to move and this would create a lot of links that were that gave them a lot of social impact that is not necessarily credited to them because there was sort of like this um, chain of women and that and they had a say in affairs because they would often be fam more familiar with what was going on in different households and societies so they had a significant role it wasn't in any way oh they were just housewives yeah. You know, in those days, there was no working outside the home for the man or the woman. Yeah, that's where you made your money. And so they're essentially yeah. in charge of running a economic enterprise with extended network connections. So it's yes. not, mm -hmm. yeah, it's not exactly, again, like black and white. Um, they have no rights, you know, strict um, public-private divisions the way uh, maybe uh, Victorian era um, had the different yeah. spheres. Um so actually, this might um, help with the other aspect um, in terms of, you know, do you have to marry your rapist kind of idea? Um, so in Deuteronomy 21, starting at 10, here, I'll just read it real quick. Um, it's regarding marrying a captive woman, which they weren't supposed to go sack cities anyways, but when they did, um, when you go yep. to war against your enemies and the Lord your God delivers them into your hands and you take captives, if you notice among the captives a beautiful woman and are attracted to her, you may take her as your wife. Bring her into your home and have her shave her head, trim her nails, and put aside the clothes she was wearing when captured. After she has lived in your house and mourned her father and mother for a full month, then you may go to her and be her husband, and she shall be your wife. If you are not pleased with her, let her go wherever she wishes. You must not sell her or treat her as a slave, since you have dishonored her. Yeah, exactly. And you'll notice two things there. That yes, the, the captive women were taken. I'm not trying to excuse that. But um, the, the fact that she they, they are given a time to grieve, that they, they're not allowed to rape them, that what it, it, she shall become your wife, you know, that, that you can't just use her as a prostitute or rape her and leave her, leave her at the side of the road. And then if she does become your wife and you tire of her, you can't sell her into slavery. You have to give her her freedom back. So, no, it's not ideal, but um, considering some of the things that happened in the ancient Near East, that, you know, that this is, this is a different society. And in terms of their ethics, this would have been seen as something reasonable. Now, we wouldn't see it that way because we have a very different society. And, you know, that this and, – and really – that when you look at our society and you see the things that go on in our society, it's very easy to be judgmental about this. And, and yet, look at the things that are going on in our society, the atrocities that are committed um, on a daily basis on in our society. Scale. Yeah, and something else for people to think about, like this is a world where um, when cities are sacked, um, the women get like killed, raped, um, sold into slavery. Um, that was the that was the reality. When Nick Nick, when you and I did the section on the judges, um, we talked about even um, the generals. Uh, was it his mother saying, "Oh yeah, he's probably gonna have a great time raping you know some young women." I wonder how he's doing yeah. right now. Oh, that's sister's mother. Yeah, yeah, that's it. yeah, and that's it. That the mother is waiting at home, waiting for her son to bring back the spoil of war and oh he's going to bring all this stuff to her and he'll bring back you know women and it's actually rather crude in the hebrew um it, in most bibles it will say he'll bring back one woman or uh, two women for everybody well it's it's a very crude term it uses there mm. and this this is the nature of the society that um this was a, a society where this sort of thing was commonplace and so the fact that the israelites are encouraged to um treat these women at least with a degree of respect not, not an ideal situation but you know they they don't rape them and leave them for dead they they he they are told to make okay you make her a wife if you want her make her a wife yeah and yeah. you and then you you can't sell her back as a slave afterwards if you don't like her because she's your wife now yeah she's gonna be so, running yeah. the household she's gonna be controlling your affairs at home she's you're gonna work closely with her um, rather than, oh yeah, you can just kind of impulse rape or, 
you know, take, take her back, pass her around, do whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, and if, yeah, you don't want to take her as a wife, then you, she gets to go wherever she wants. So, well, and there's also an additional sense of, of agency here. You know, the, the clause, you know, let her go wherever she wishes. Yeah. Um, and, right. and I, I mean, I reading agency language, divine and human agency in second temple Judaism and new Testament stuff. Um, I see, I, I'm just shocked when I see that sort of stuff in these sorts of, of, of I, I want to call it a law code cause that's ingrained in my head, but in those, in this, in these teachings or, or these exhortations. And that makes, that's oddly compelling to me to see women, at least in this section, given a sense of agency, whereas I imagine, um, well, rape is kind of antithetical to the idea of agency and self-dignity and preservation and stuff like that. Yeah, it's about power. Yeah, and the fact that she has some agency here is, is indicative of, well, maybe that's where God is like, well, yeah, she has agency too. Maybe you need to think better about how you yeah. how you treat people. And, you know, the seeds of, we might say the seeds of God's work are beginning to bloom a little maybe. I don't know. I'm yeah. not trying to put it like sanitize this, but I just noticed the agency no. aspect and I was, I was surprised it's by that. Yeah, and I feel that when people, and when you bring up a lot of these verses, I feel sometimes, too, that I'm kind of justifying it. And I'm, I'm really not. I'm trying to explain their thinking on it. Mm -hmm. And in our society, no, this wouldn't fly. No. Um, and, I, and I'm not saying that it was a, even a good thing in their society. I'm just expressing their their mental attitude at the time and how they would have viewed it and that this would have made sense to them. Yeah. But, you know, one of the things that um, I mentioned the Garden of Eden at one point that, you know, when God created humanity, he and he um, I, people say that the Garden of Eden was good, but it wasn't perfect. And, and, and by that, they mean that that Adam and that the, before the fall, there was yes, there was no sin. But it doesn't mean that Adam and Eve were intended to sit in the garden for all eternity, you know, eating fruit except from the from the one they weren't supposed to, and that that was the end of the matter. God always intended humanity to 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 mature and grow and and develop as caretakers of His creation, and we messed up. And so now it's almost like we've received these setbacks, but God is still trying to lead us to maturity. And this is the whole wisdom tradition of the Old Testament, that with not, not law, regular, harsh, you know, legalistic law, but wisdom, helping people to grow in wisdom so that, you know, what people want, they want God to give them a little list of rules and regulations that they can follow all the time and never get into trouble. Yeah. But he yeah. wants us, on the other hand, to grow into maturity. And it, that's what the wisdom tradition is about, is about growing in maturity as you interact with God and learn his character. And so we can't, and this process is still going on. Um, I mentioned that it, it, for, I've been reading 1 Corinthians 2 so much recently, where he says, if we don't want the wisdom of the world, but then it says, yet among the mature, we do speak wisdom. So it's not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age. And it goes on, these things, God has revealed these things through his spirit. And we have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit is from God. So we're still, I love 1 Corinthians 2, because it, basically we are still on this journey. And we are still trying to grow close enough to God and through his spirit to emulate his character in the world and we're still a long way short of that but god's goal is to through the spirit to help us to mature so that we can make better decisions and so that we can act more compassionately and it's i think god is working in and through us he has not imposed a legalistic set of regulations from the outside I think God's plan overall throughout the from creation to new creation is that he is trying he's working through us through his spirit to mature humanity and to ultimately you know to bring those these people into his eternal kingdom where then we you know in the eschaton we will finally realize what God has in store for us, but we're still in on the we're still on the path. Yeah, and and scripture, uh, at least uh, how 
the, the various authors kind of to, you know portray uh, the God-human relationship, there seems to be a very strong, even pervasive influence of the idea of participation or co-participants in what God is doing. And that, you know, includes an invitation. Absolutely. And, you yeah. know, if you kind of, if we make it, if we push it too much to the God side of that, then you run the risk of, you know, uh, these sorts of things becoming ensconced in concrete and that doesn't fit narrative. It doesn't fit contextual theology. But on the other hand, if you press it too much to the human side, you run the risk of, um, you know, and, and there's scripture seems to really portray that balance of, the God invites yeah. or cajoles or corrects or pushes us around a little bit sometimes. But overall, it seems to be that we are yeah. invited to participate in new creation and what God is doing. And sometimes that means things move at, a glacial, move at a glacial pace. And other times, they you do. know, in Christ, sometimes yeah. the end comes very quickly in some sense. And that's why it talks, uh, the verse escapes me at the moment. Hey, I'm an Old Testament scholar. But the, the verse that talks about God working in us, and yet we have to work out our salvation. And uh, numerous verses that, verses that talk about maturity and, and growth. And, uh, and I love the way that First Corinthians 2 ends, because it says that uh, those who are spiritual discern all things, and they themselves are so subject to no one else's scrutiny. Who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. And I think that this is, you know, far more than trying to, and, and, and the whole idea, too, about the new covenant, that the old covenant was written on top of the stone, but the new covenant on human hearts. That it's a, a well, I, you may have heard that song, The Inside Out, and whatever, it's musical marriage. You know, that's the way God works, and he's very patient with us. And for that, I think we can be grateful that we have a long way to go, but that, and, and I do believe that God is in control. He will ensure that we get from A to B. But sometimes he, it's not necessarily a straight line from A to B, that he will allow us to make mistakes and wander. Ultimately, he will bring us back. But he, the, the, the free will that we have is not unlimited, but it's, it's real. And, and he, he doesn't want a bunch of robots. He wants us to grow into maturity through relationship with him. And to me, that's where he's heading. Yeah, and I, I'm reminded of, of uh, the story of, I think it's Deuteronomy 30, where, um, where the author exhorts, you know, choose this day whom, whom you'll serve, yeah. and all those sorts of ideas. And I see that kind of summed up in Paul's, uh, in Romans 8.13, where if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if with the spirit or by the spirit, you put to deed the misdeeds of the body, you will live. And there's kind of a, an encapsulation of that. And there seems to be... Yeah kind of where the Old Testament story is taking us. And that's why our story is built upon the foundation of what happened, but also on what God is also doing through the work of the Spirit today. Yeah, yeah. and although I admit the cross was a massive turning point in history, um, the you know, the essential part of God's plan, but I don't believe that like, the Old Testament is law, the New Testament is grace. Da -da. No, there's, God has been patiently working with humanity gracefully working with them throughout the, the Old Testament and and into the new. What are some, so yeah, what are some things, ways that the Old Testament law was actually extending, um, I'd say more freedom towards women too, or um, pr providence that wasn't there before? The best person to read on that is, there, there are a number of people, I'm, I'm not an expert on ancient Near Eastern laws. I know there there are instances where it would appear that the that the Bible is more um, compassionate towards women than other countries, but I think that generally speaking is has been over exaggerated a bit. Okay. Yes, the, the the Bible does grant women in the Old Testament. There are a lot of strong women. One of the reasons I chose to work my, my most of my work is in Judges, most of my writing has been in Judges, is that that is a book that's full of women. And yeah. they're, the women there are real, and they're good, and they're bad, and they're indifferent. And I, for example, I strong the Aksa. Nobody even knows who Aksa is, and, you know, that, that um, uh, Caleb said he would marry his daughter off to whoever conquered the city and marries her off to Othniel. And that, she seems, again, that she's a weak woman. But no, 
if you read my, my our, our commentary when it comes out, AXA is a strong woman, that, and she makes a significant change in the course of events there, in the course of leadership, and people just gloss over it. And you look at people like, like um, Deborah, and she is a strong woman, and Jail, even Jail is a strong woman. You look at Hannah, you look at all these people that are very strong women, and I think the Bible honors that. Mm. and uh, gives them the, the, yes it's a male dominated society and but there are so many strong women in the old testament that are and, and if i could just go back to eve for a minute that everybody everybody blames eve well of course eve was the one who got us into this mess in the it wasn't adam it was eve well i won't I don't have time to go into it now but please read my article on Genesis in the new Discovering Biblical Equality, because, no, it was, I, I, I actually argue in there that Adam is more culpable than Eve. So, you know, I don't think that the Bible portrays women as negatively as a lot of people think it does. I think it honors women, but you have it honors them within that context. So maybe they don't get 50% of the airtime. No. But in that society, they are honored. In, in terms of the way that society would express it, they are honored. And, of course, there were the Delilahs. And there were, there were the troublemakers. I'm not arguing that. And I do think that the Old Testament, in many ways, honored them. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time and your expertise and your wisdom. Uh, this has been just a wonderful time. I, I, made, I did my master's in New Testament. And so I, I look at the, at the Old Testament as that stepbrother or stepsister that I never really got to know. So uh, thank you for introducing us a little bit. I feel a little more acquainted with, with the family of faith on that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, it's, it's well worth exploring, as I found out when I took that first Old Testament course. <laughs> Do you have any uh, resources you would recommend to our, our listeners if they want to know a little bit more? Um, there's there's a lot of discussion going on in academia and right now about the law. This is something we've been discussing here at college over a number of years. Um, I do have, um, if you look at, okay, I have to go into my list, my law list here. I went over to the woman list. But in the law list, there are a lot of people that talk about Old Testament ethics and deal with the role of the law in that. Uh, Christopher Wright is one. He wrote Old Testament Ethics for the People of God. Um, Another person I found very helpful is, um, where is he here? Um, Bruce Birch, Let Justice Roll Down. Um, There's also uh, John Walton, who has written um, a new, recently a new book on the Torah, where he talks a, a great deal about misunderstandings about the Torah. So those are a few resources. And Rogerson, Rogerson, John Rogerson, Theory and Practice in Old Testament Ethics. But there are lots of, of good books out there. And oh, and Roy Gain. Roy Gain recently wrote a book, Old Testament Law for Christians. Now, I don't agree with him totally, but you know, it's um, I don't claim to have all the answers and sometimes it helps to read different perspectives on uh, on the law. For sure. Thank you so much, Mary. Okay. Well, I've enjoyed it.